Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would instruct our hearts, that you would teach us how to say what needs to be said, how to love, how to bless, how to hope, how to read the Bible, and Lord, we pray that through all this you would teach us how to die well for the glory of your great name. We pray this in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> we'll be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 49, but as you turn there, I want to read to you the summary of what we're going to see in Genesis 49 in Hebrews 11:22, where the author of Hebrews writes... In verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So this text tells us that as Jacob died, he blessed Joseph's sons. And what we're going to see in this passage, in Genesis 49, is the way that not only did Jacob bless Joseph's sons, as we saw in Genesis 48, the last time I was here in the pulpit, Joseph also blessed each of his sons. And I would invite you to consider the way that, Joseph, that Jacob came into the world in, co in comparison with the way that he now goes out of the world. You'll remember he came into the world grasping his brother's heel. And that really led to his name. Yaakov. Akev in Hebrew means heel, and, and he was named something like heel grasper. He's, he's grasping his brother's heel. It's as though he's trying to take, even in the process of childbirth, his brother's station, his brother's place. But now, here at the end of his life, as he exits the world, he's ready to give. He, he's ready to bless. I can remember at some point in the course of our years together, um, as, as, as Denny and I were either talking or I don't remember the occasion, I think someone was dying. And, and Denny said, I think he was praying, I think he prayed something to the effect of, Lord, I pray that everything that needs to be said would be said. And as we look at Genesis 49, that's what we see Jacob do. At the end of his life, Jacob says what needs to be said. And I can also remember as, as Billy Graham aged, I once either read or heard him say something to the effect of, there's not enough instruction in our churches on what it looks like to die, on how to get old. But right here this morning in Genesis 49, Jacob is going to model for us how to live at the end of life. So I'd like to... Uh, invite you to look with me at Genesis 49, and what we're going to look, look at first are the first two verses, Genesis 49, 1 and 2, and then the last five verses, verses 28 through 33. So in verses 1 and, 1 and 2, we read here, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see many ways in which 
what Jacob says here to his sons pertains to the future of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in verse 2, he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And we'll, we'll come back and look at what he says regarding each one of these 12 uh, men. Look with me down at verse 28 now. Here we read, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the intervening verses, he will address each of, the 12, each tw- each of his 12 sons. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So notice how in in verse 28, you've got this is what their father said to them. And back up in verse 2, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel in verse 28. And this is what their father said to them. And then you get this pile up of of references to blessing as he blessed them blessing each with the blessing suitable to him in many ways the whole book of Genesis is about blessing Genesis 1 28 God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply and then God blesses Abraham in Genesis 12 and he says to him I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and then as we saw in the call to worship The blessing of Abraham is repeated as as Jacob actually steals that blessing from Esau. And and the Lord says again, blessing I will bless you, and cursing I will curse those who curse you. These instances of the word blessing here in verse 28 are the last instances of that word in the book of Genesis. So it's it's as though we've come to the end of Jacob's life and, and we reach the last, the final instances of this word blessing. And I think that we see here the transformation of this man, Jacob. This man who, who as, as I mentioned, came into the world grasping his brother's heel. As we've talked about, he blew up his family when he stole Esau's blessing. And then he went over to Paran Aram and he, and he really blew up his father-in-law's family as he, as he deceived his father-in-law and stole his flocks from him and then, and then fled from him with his wives and the children and and the flocks and herds that he had acquired. And then he comes back and there's kind of a reconciliation with his brother, but not really with Esau. And yet at the end of his life, at the end of his life, though, though his home life, I think we would agree, must have been a total wreck for, for his brothers to want to kill, the one who was obviously their father's favorite, for them then to sell that man into slavery, and then for all of the other fallout that we've seen, Nevertheless, at the end of his life, he's blessing these people. And and I think we're going to see, as we go through these statements, where he needs to, I think he's calling them to repentance and, and, and making sure that he says what he needs to say before he dies. So I think we see here in Genesis 49 that the good work that the Lord started in Jacob and, and again, this tells us that the God of the Bible is not a God who looks around and finds the righteous people to save. No, there are none righteous. The God of the Bible is a God who saves people like Jacob. He saves scoundrels. He saves those who steal blessings from others. He saves those who defraud their fathers-in-law. 
This is the kind of God the God of the Bible is. He takes a man like Jacob and he transforms him and he makes him into a blessing. Uh, Jacob had said in Genesis 47, 9, as he met Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and, few and evil were the days of his years. And yet, as we look at Genesis 49, I want to suggest to you that he dies well. He dies well. And, and I want to invite you as a point of application here to, in response to what we're going to see here, I want to invite you to consider what you want to be like when you come to die. What will the words that come out of you at the end of your days be like? We continue here in verse 20, 29. He commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, at, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And, and, and what we see here is that Jacob has overcome the world. Because what Jacob is doing here is he's saying, God has promised us the land. God has promised us the land of Canaan, and that promise and that land are more to be desired than the things of this earth. That promise and that land are more to be desired than all the, the glory of Egypt. So rather than be buried in a fabulous tomb in Egypt, which Joseph certainly could have provided for him, and we know about these tombs in Egypt, don't we? We know about these, these pyramids and, and the way that the Egyptians honored the dead and the way that they, they provided for them with, with, with wealth and the desirable things of the world. And it's as though Jacob is saying, none of that matters. What matters is God's promise. What matters is the land that God promised to Abraham. And you see also that Jacob is not identifying with the Egyptians. He's not identifying with the world. Jacob is identifying with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac and Rebekah. And he wants to be buried where they have been buried. So as we, as we consider Jacob's life and his burial here, you see there in verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. The, the description of Jacob's death is much like the description of other deaths that we've seen in the book of Genesis. And as we consider his life, we, we can note that uh, we're going to be uh, told here that, that he lived 147 years. So he's 147 years old when he died. In a, in a, a, a chapter or two ago, we read that he was 17 years with Joseph in Egypt. That means that he went down into Egypt when he was about 130 years old. From various pieces of information, we can put it together that his father Isaac died when he was 120. We can, we can piece together the, the pieces of information and, and see that Joseph was sold into slavery when Jacob was 108. Uh, this would indicate that Jacob returned to the land of Canaan when he was 97 
and that Joseph was probably born when he was 91. Um, so what we see is that Jacob lived a very long life, and yet he himself described it as the days of his life as few and evil. But it, again, at the end, he has put things in order. And, and we're, we're going to see, we, we've just read how he get, gave his instructions concerning, concerning where he was to be buried. And those instructions reflect his priorities. As we move through this passage, we'll see that he's not only hoping for the promise of the land, he's also hoping for the promised seed to come. And he knows that that seed is going to come through the line of Judah from what we'll see. So he's put things in order by giving these instructions that we've just read. In, in the blessings, we'll see that he says what needs to be said to his sons as he dies. Those who need to be called to repentance, he calls them to repentance. Those who are to be blessed, he blesses. And, and where he needs to make the prophecy regarding the future king from his line, he makes the prophecy. Jacob overcame the world, and he dies blessing his family and hoping in the one to come. As we look at now what, what he says to his sons, there, there is a, a strategic ordering of this passage. Um, the passage does not go, Jacob does not go through his sons in the order that they were born. Uh, he starts in the order that they were born, but he deviates from that order. And, and I think that, that Jacob has strategically arranged, or, or uh, Moses presents Jacob strategically arranging the order of this blessing um, to, to highlight in particular what he's going to say to Judah and what he's going to say to Joseph. So as we move through here, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of order. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through everything else and we're going to end with what Jacob says to Judah because I think that's what's most important even though that's not the order in which it's presented. So look with me at verse 3 where Jacob begins to address his firstborn. Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And you can hear Jacob's disgust with his son. This is reflecting the fact that Reuben went into ja one of Jacob's wives. Reuben went into one of Jacob's uh, concubines. Probably what Reuben was doing was trying to assert his authority in the family. He was probably trying to take leadership in the family. And the fact that Jacob brings it up here, in comparison with the way that, that he doesn't bring up sins that other sons, particularly Judah, will have committed. The fact that he brings it up here seems to indicate that this situation has not been resolved. He, I, I would suggest to you that he's calling Reuben to repentance even on his deathbed. And the fact that he speaks of it the way that he does seems to indicate that he and Reuben are not reconciled because Reuben is not repented. And so Jacob, 
Jacob is not blessing Reuben. Now, if we think about our lives and the sins that we have committed, this serves as a warning to us. Because Reuben probably thought that he was going to succeed. Reuben probably thought that he was both going to enjoy this experience and that it was going to lead to him being honored and exalted in the family and lead to him being the most prominent of Jacob's sons. And it leads to none of that. And it shows us again the way that sin lies to us. Sin lies to us and sin makes us foolish. Looking at it from our perspective, we look at Reuben and we say, how could you have done that? Why would you do that? And what we need to do is realize that when people look at the sins that we're tempted to commit, whether these are sins of pride, as we exalt ourselves over others, or, or esteem ourselves more highly than we ought, or sins of meanness, as we treat one another in ways that, that people would look at us and say, how could you do this? Why would you do this? Or sins of greed or lust or whatever it is that tempts you. We, we, we should try to put ourselves in this deathbed perspective and look at it from the perspective that it will be seen when we come to die, when we will feel for ourselves. How could I have done that? Why would I do that? Why would I believe those lies? And, and, and then we want to respond to temptation from that perspective. Uh, we continue in this vein, I think, as Jacob speaks of Simeon and Levi. And he says here in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. He's, he's probably referencing what they did in Genesis 34 after uh, Dinah was abused and they deceived the inhabitants of that city and then they put them under the ban, slaughtered them all. Uh, he says in verse 6, Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. If your father spoke of you like this just before his death how would this affect you I think that Jacob again is is urging Simeon and Levi to repent I think he's saying what needs to be said because they have not responded the way they need to respond he goes on in verse 6 for in their anger they killed men and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. Notice he doesn't curse them. He curses their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And as, Israel, as the history of the nation plays out, uh, the, the tribe of Levi gets no tribal allotment of land. They, they uh, get the Lord, they become servants of the tabernacle and the Levites are scattered through the tribes. And, and similarly, Simeon, their tribal allotment is within the land of Judah, and it's almost as though they're absorbed by the larger and more powerful tribe of Judah. So what, what Jacob says here of those two tribes eventually comes to pass. And we're going to come back to verses 8 through 12, um, the blessing of Judah. Um, as, we, as we go to verse 13, uh, I would point out here that as, 
as Jacob blesses Zebulun, he puts his sons out of order because Zebulun was actually born after Issachar. So he's, he's working through the sons of Leah in verses 3 through 15. But when we get to Zebulun, he was born after Issachar, but Jacob moves him up in the order. And I, I think this is our first indication that the arrangement is not proceeding according to birth order. There's a, there's a different principle at work uh, on which uh, Jacob is operating that Moses is presenting to us. So verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. And then he says of Issachar in verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. These comments uh, do portend the, the future of the tribes as as Zebulun was a, a significant tribe in the north, and as Issachar was also a tribe in the north that eventually uh, became subject to Canaanite inhabitants of the land. As we move into verse 16, um, we get introduced to the sons of Bilhah, uh, which were, Bilhah was Rachel's handmaiden, uh, whom Rachel gave to um, to her husband Jacob, and Bilhah had two sons. We're going to get the first here in verses 16 and 17, Dan, and then it's going to skip, uh, and we'll get the second one after the sons of Zilpah. So the, the, the order of the sons goes Leah, Zilpah, I'm sorry, Bilhah, then Zilpah, then back to Bilhah, and then finally Rachel. So we have a, a, a chiastic structuring of the the order of the sons, which again does not match uh, the order in which they were born. So verses 16 and 17, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. As these verses have been contemplated over the years, uh, the the Jewish scholars suggested uh, pre-Christian Jewish scholars suggested that uh, this was fulfilled in Samson and that um, uh, Samson, who arose from the tribe of Dan, uh, delivered Israel by uh, biting the horse's heels, figuratively speaking. And then it was further suggested that when Jacob foresaw that Samson was going to die and not be the Messiah, he responded with verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So you can see what's being suggested there. They're suggesting that in these blessings, Jacob is looking forward to the Messiah. He's looking forward to the one who would arise to deliver Israel. And that brings us in verse 19 to uh, Gad. And Gad is uh, the son of Zilpah, Gad and Asher. These are um, the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's handmaid. Verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, the word Gad sounds like the word raid. So it's as though he's saying uh, raiders shall raid raid, but he shall raid at their heels. It's just that repetition of that same sound. Verse 20, Asher, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Uh, so we get the sons of, of Zilpah there. And then verse 21 brings us to the second son of Bilhah. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful 
fawns. Uh, and, and, and now we come to verse 22, and you'll notice that the blessing of Joseph that begins here in verse 22 is going to stretch all the way down to verse 26. So um, both Judah and Joseph get this, this longer statement. And before we look more, more closely at Joseph, drop, drop your eyes down to verse 27 where we read this one line of Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Uh, perhaps... This is uh, pointing forward to the way that Saul would uh, plunder enemy peoples and, and be uh, you know, the, Israel's first king from the line of Benjamin. Now, a moment ago, I suggested that Jacob is dying well. And he's dying well by saying what needs to be said. And as he says what needs to be said, he is, as I said, calling people like Reuben and I think Simeon and Levi to repentance... And now he's, we're going to look at the way that he blesses Joseph. And as he blesses Joseph, I want to suggest to you that he equips us with strategies for overcoming sin as he speaks of Joseph. So look at verse 22. He writes, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Do you hear the imagery? It's almost as though he's saying, Joseph is like a tree planted by a water source. And as we've looked at Genesis, I've suggested to you that when we read, for instance, that the Lord was with Joseph, and when we've looked at the way that Joseph uh, prospered in everything that he does, I've suggested that this is language that describes those who meditate on the scripture and thereby experience God's presence and blessing in their lives. And this language could be language that prompts the author of Psalm 1 to speak of the blessed man who uh, is going to meditate on the, the, the law of the Lord day and night and be like a tree planted by streams of water. So I think that Joseph's lifestyle is reflected for us here. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. You could almost say he bears his fruit in season. And his leaf does not wither, to use the language of Psalm 1. And I want to propose to you that, that what's being suggested here is the way that if you will meditate on the Scriptures, the Scriptures will convince you that that. The hope of the Messiah and the hope of the world to come, the, the hope that your body is going to be raised from the dead and that you will inhabit a new heaven and new earth in a glorified body, the fulfillment of the land of promise, the reversal of the curse of death, those hopes will enable you to look at the lies of the world and say, those are false promises that are being offered to me by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the scriptures that will give you a light for your path, that will expose the pitfalls that, that the enemies and the adversaries want to put before you to cause you to step into and, and break your leg. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And then verse 23, this is probably reflecting the way that Joseph's brothers persecuted him, sold him into slavery. And then we know Joseph's story. We know that 
once he got enslaved, there were these false charges made about him by Potiphar's wife, which landed him in prison, and then people uh, neglected to keep their promises to him. And that whole course is probably reflected here as, as Jacob metaphorically speaks of those things in verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. This is indicating that what, what made Joseph steadfast, what made it so that Joseph could keep the faith, could uh, walk with God, could experience God's presence and blessing on everything that he did, even in prison, was the mighty one of Jacob. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. It was God who helped Joseph. It was God who sustained Joseph. And I would suggest to you, as we did, as we considered when we looked at this, that even though Joseph didn't have written scripture in his day, he knew the stories, he knew the promises, he knew what God had said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to his father Jacob, and he contemplated those things, and that's what put him to, in position to say to Potiphar's wife, how could I do this thing? And sin against God. And, and that enables him to resist temptation. And it also puts him, puts him in position to recognize the hand of God in his circumstances and say to his brothers, as he will in the next chapter, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. It, it, it equips him with the wisdom and the largeness of heart to be prepared to forgive the scriptures or the teaching that is now in the scriptures, the promises that are now in the scriptures. I think this is the way that God enabled Joseph to be that kind of person. At the end of verse 24, the ESV puts this statement in parentheses. It says, from there is the shepherd the stone of Israel. And I think it's saying from there, from the mighty one of Jacob, from the Lord, is the shepherd. And if you, if you look back at Genesis 48, 15, Jacob had blessed Joseph saying, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. So I think, I think Jacob is saying that God is the shepherd of his people. And then he goes on, he says, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And this may be an allusion to that stone that uh, Jacob put under his head. And then he has that vision back in Genesis 28, uh, verse 11. Uh, Jacob, that, that stone, and then he, he, he uh, says, this, surely this is the gate of heaven um, and, and this is the house of God. So from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Jacob is recognizing God's work in Joseph's life. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you. And, and as Jacob continues here, he, he's, not, he's not overtly articulating the very same things that will be stated in, in the blessings of the covenant over in Deuteronomy 28. But it sounds like the blessings of the covenant. And the blessings of the covenant sound like a description of life under God's favor. So he says here, he, he wants uh, God to bless Joseph. And he says, 
in, in the middle of verse 25, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. In the ancient world, this is probably a reference to the steady rains. And without the steady rains, I mean, uh, the rain in the ancient world is sort of like the supply chain in our world. If we don't have the supply chain, we can't buy toilet paper or we can't get... I mean, somebody, uh, uh, Chris Birch was telling me this week about how long he had to wait to get uh, everything needed to get his microwave oven installed. And, and, and people are experiencing these snarls in the supply chain. Well, in the ancient world, if you don't have rain, you, the food doesn't grow. The crops don't grow. The animals aren't fed. And, and so Jacob is blessing uh, Joseph with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. All kinds of wonderful things come out of the water for the good of people. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. This is a way of saying, may the Lord make it so that your wife does not miscarry, so that your children are born healthy. May the Lord make it so that there's plenty of food for your wife to eat, so that she can nourish and sustain your children as she nurses them. That's what's being communicated here. And then he continues, verse 26, saying to Joseph... The blessings of your father, speaking of himself, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, which is a remarkable statement. Jacob is saying, the words that I am now speaking over you, Joseph, are more powerful blessings than were spoken over me. And, and I think the rationale for this is, well, Abraham only had one child, Isaac. And Isaac only had two children and only one of them. Was, was blessed. Me, Jacob. And now here I am, the Lord has made me into 12 tribes. So God's purposes and God's promises are, are beginning to snowball and they're beginning to build up and they're beginning to be realized and that adds to what I am able to communicate as I bless you at the end of my life. The blessings of your father, verse 26, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. I think that Jacob here is referencing ancient creation, the, the original creation. And he, and he seems to be suggesting that the bounties of the original creation, those bounties come in the blessings that he speaks over Joseph. At the end of verse 26, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And, and we know the story of, of the way that Joseph was set apart from his brothers. He, he had those dreams which marked him off as the one to whom his brothers would bow down. And then in God's providence, this led to him being sold and eventually exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And then sure enough, his brothers come and bow down to him. And, and at that point, he's Lord of all Egypt. So he's set apart from them, from them culturally and and by virtue of the roles and responsibilities and the authority that he has over all Egypt. <clears throat> and there's an important, I think, uh, pattern here that is prefiguring the one to come. And one aspect of this is the fact that the word for set apart here is, is the Hebrew term that we bring into English as Nazarite. And, and as we continue across the Old Testament, we're going to see these these figures who are Nazarites from birth. Samson will be a Nazarite from birth. Samuel will be a Nazarite from birth. And then John the Baptist will come as the Nazarite, as a Nazarite from birth. And all of those guys 
are prefiguring and foreshadowing the one who will be exalted to the place of lordship. The one who, like Joseph, will bring about reconciliation between himself and his brothers as he extends forgiveness to those who sought his life. So Joseph is an important type of Christ. Uh, but, the, but the one through whom the Christ will come is Judah. And so we, we look now back to verse 8 to look at what Jacob says regarding his son Judah. You, you may remember that as Leah began to have children, she kept hoping that Jacob would love her. And she kept saying things like when Simeon and Levi were born, surely now my husband will love me since I have borne him three sons. And, and that doesn't seem to have uh, turned out to be the case because when Judah was born, she responds with the words, this time I will praise the Lord. And in Hebrew, the word for praise is something like uh, yada or maybe Yehuda, depending upon how it's pointed. And, and so she gives her son a name that sounds like praise because her intention now is to turn her heart to the Lord and praise him for the way that he has opened her womb and blessed her. And, and Jacob now blesses Judah with those words. It's as though he says, praise your brothers will praise you. And you notice he doesn't feel a need to call Judah to repentance. He's not bringing up the fact that it was Judah who suggested that they sell Joseph down into slavery. He's not bringing up what happened between Judah and Tamar. Why? Well, we saw in that episode with Judah and Tamar, we saw the way that Judah, when, when the, the, the cord and the staff that were the, the tokens were presented to him, he responds saying of Tamar, Tamar she is more righteous than I. And, and I think that in that, he recognizes his sinfulness. And then we further read that he did not know her again. And I think we see there evidence of his repentance. So because he repented, and, and then as we continue through the story, we see the way that he's prepared to offer himself in Benjamin's place as a surety, as a pledge for Benjamin's life. And then that great speech at the end of Genesis 44 that he, that he speaks to Joseph, saying to Joseph, let my brother Benjamin go and take me in his place. We see this really Christ-like giving of himself on Judah's part that evidences the way that he has been transformed by God's grace. I think it's because of that that Judah is, is being recognized by his father as worthy of praise. So he says here, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And then beginning to, beginning to anticipate the way that Judah will be the one to conquer, to triumph. And, and here, I think that you, you have both Jacob prophetically declaring what will happen in the future and Moses recognizing that Jacob has spoken truth about the future and himself also prophetically communicating truth about the future. So Jacob prophesies, and as Moses records the prophecy, it's as though Moses affirms the prophecy. He says here in verse 8, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Which means he's going to triumph over, he's going to conquer his enemies. Uh, you don't have to turn here, 
But if you'd like to turn to Psalm 18, I think that David in Psalm 18 recognizes, David knows that he descends from Judah, and David knows the promises that have been made to him. And in Psalm 18, verse 40, the ESV renders this, you made my enemies turn their backs to me. Uh, But there's a footnote, if you're looking at an ESV, on the word me, and if you look down in the lower margin, it says, or you gave me my enemies' necks. That's what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew says, you gave me my enemies' necks, and they've interpreted this to mean that as the enemies came out to David, they saw him, and they gave their necks in the sense that they turned away and fled from him. But literally, the text says, you gave me my enemies' necks. I think David, in Psalm 18, verse 40, is alluding to the blessing of Judah in Genesis 49, verse 8. And and David is saying, what was prophesied concerning Judah came to pass in me as I was exalted to reign and then as I conquered all my surrounding enemies. And that points forward too, doesn't it? That points forward to the one who's going to come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19. To deliver all who are oppressed and to put down all who have rebelled against him. Continuing in verse 8 of Genesis 49... These next words are remarkable. Genesis 49, verse 8, the last phrase of the verse says, Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Let me remind you of Genesis 27, 29. This is as as Isaac blesses Jacob. Genesis 27, 29, Isaac says to Jacob, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you, be Lord over your brothers. So Isaac says these words to Jacob, and then you'll remember Joseph's dreams. In Joseph's dreams, you remember his brothers come and bow down to him. And now Jacob is saying, you notice he's not saying to Joseph, your brothers are going to bow down to you and to one who comes from your line. No, he's saying to Judah, your father's sons, your brothers, in essence, shall bow down before you. It's as though Joseph's dream is taken from Joseph and applied now to Judah. And and I think that this results as Jacob prophetically discerns the one that is going to reign from our line. Genesis 17, 6, the Lord said to Abraham, kings will come from you. And then he said to Sarah in Genesis 17, 16, kings will come from Sarah. And now Jacob discerns the king is going to come from Joseph. I'm I'm sorry, from Judah, not Joseph. The king is going to come from Judah. And continuing in this vein, verse 9, Jacob says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Uh, Imagery that pertains to lions is universally recognized as imagery that pertains to kings. And, And that holds in the Bible also. And this echoes across the scriptures all the way to that passage that we read earlier in the service. When the angel cries out, the root of David... And that's picking up Isaiah 11. Behold, you know, a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. The root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered 
That's what the angel says in Revelation 5. Identifying the Lord Jesus as the one prophesied in Genesis 49.9. This is also amazingly re-articulated, reiterated by Balaam of all people. We read earlier, Matt, Matt Pierce read earlier in the service from Numbers 23 and 24. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I would invite you to uh, stick a finger here in Genesis 49 and listen, listen to Genesis 49.9, and then I'm going to read Numbers 24. 324. Numbers 49, 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And then now, Numbers 23, 24. Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie, lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And then listen to 24, 9. This sounds just like Genesis 49, 9. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Now, I don't know if Balaam somehow got his hands on the blessing that Jacob is speaking over his sons and, and was informed by it and re-articulated it. I don't know if that's what happened or if God just took control of Balaam's mind and made it so that Balaam spoke the same words, essentially, that, that Jacob had spoken over Judah. Whatever happened with, with Balaam, evidently Moses got his hands on what Balaam said. And I think Moses wants to be sure that people recognize that, that the, the promise is being re-articulated. The promise stated regarding Judah is restated by Balaam there in Numbers 23 and 24. And a moment ago, I read to you from Genesis 27... And, and listen again to these words at the end of Genesis 27, 29. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And you'll recognize that Genesis 27, 29 is a simple restatement of Genesis 12, 3, where the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Right? So, so Genesis 12, 3, restated in Genesis 27, 29. Look at the rest of Numbers 24, 9. After... After quoting the blessing of Judah in the first part of Numbers 24.9, the last part of Numbers 24.9, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. It's as, though, it's as though Moses makes sure that people recognize that the blessing of Abraham, Genesis 12.3, which is restated over Jacob, Genesis 27.29, is going to come through the king from Judah's line. And so Moses presents Balaam quoting the blessing of Judah and then the blessing of Abraham. As if to say, this is how the blessing is going to happen. The blessing is going to happen through the king from the line of Judah. Back to Genesis 49, 9. Verse 10, we read, the scepter. And this word for scepter is also going to just recur all across the Old Testament. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Um, Psalm 2, you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And, and there are so many texts in the Old Testament that are going to use this term for scepter. It, it also occurs in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then that verse goes on. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And in context, 
Moab has hired Balaam to curse Israel, which means that Moab is under the curse, which means that Moab is seed of the serpent, which means that to curse, crush the forehead of Moab is to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, which means that this is going to come to pass through the future king from Judah's line. That's what, that's what Moses is communicating to his audience through this poetic communication. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. In the prophets, we will read about how the, the wealth of the nations is going to come to Zion as the people bring tribute to the king who is worthy. And in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, the, as, as they cry out in worship, they're going to say things like blessing and honor and wealth and power be unto him because he won't misuse it. He's worthy until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Everybody is going to obey the king. Everybody is going to fall before the king. And they're going to recognize he is Lord. As Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then if we ask, what's it going to be like when Jesus reigns? I think that we get a poetic depiction of a new Garden of Eden in verses 11 and 12. So these verses, they, they don't necessarily resonate with us. But again, I think that's because we fail to understand what they depict and what they're meant to communicate. So verse 11 tells us, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And we're like, what in the world? <laughs> what is this about? Well, we have, to, we have to think about how things would go in, in, in a world like this. We, we don't deal with donkeys and colts. But if we did, we would know what's going to happen if you bind one of those things to a vine, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the, the donkey is going to eat the vine, right? He's going to eat the fruit. And if this is the choice vine, and if resources are scarce, and if, if getting a vine to grow is hard because the land is cursed and it doesn't rain when it should, we, we're going to want to keep that donkey or that colt away from that choice vine. But if the land has become like the Garden of Eden, and if the blessing of God has so washed over everything that things are better than they were in the Garden of Eden, well, tie the donkey up by the vine. Tie him to the choice vine. It doesn't matter if he eats it. That's what's depicted here. And then to get at this next statement, uh, I want to tell you about a story I read about Amare Stoudemire. Maybe you've heard me relate this uh, somewhere else, but uh, I, I once read this article about this NBA basketball player named Amare Stoudemire. The man would fill hot tubs with wine, and then and then you know turn the temperature up and turn the jets on and get into a wine-filled hot tub in order to experience in his body the medicinal benefits of bathing in wine. Can you imagine what that would cost? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's say that a bottle of wine costs $10 and he's used so much wine that he's filled a hot tub. That's, a, that's an amazing amount of wealth and he can do it because money doesn't matter to him. He made so much money playing basketball that it doesn't matter if he pours all those bottles of wine into the hot tub. And he can do this as often as he wants 
because there is so much wealth. That same thing is communicated both in terms of how fruitful the land is and of how much wealth we're talking about when it says essentially that uh, this king is going to use wine to wash his clothes. So he's, I mean, think about how much water goes through your dishwash, your, your uh, washing machine to do a cycle of laundry. And, and this king is so wealthy and the grapes are so plentiful that he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Money is nothing to this king. Pro the prosperity, prosperity of the land is a given to this king. He doesn't have to steward resources because years of famine are coming. He can be lavish. And as a result of how well fed he is and how well nourished he is, verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. He is the picture of health. So how does Jacob die? Jacob dies essentially saying, God has blessed Abraham. And in spite of the way that we lived, in spite of the way that I lived, in spite of the way that Judah lived, God is going to bless us. And God is going to raise up a king. And when that king reigns, the curse will be removed. The land will be made new. Everything will function as God intended it to when he made it in the beginning. That's how Jacob dies. Jacob dies putting everything in order, saying everything that needs to be said, calling sinners to repentance, blessing his beloved son who walked with God, and prophesying of the king who will come to make all things new. We want to live our lives now so that we can die like Jacob died, hoping in Christ, blessing those around us, saying what needs to be said. And we can commit ourselves to live this way together. This is why we need one another. This is why we need the church. This is why your small group is so important. This is why your training of your children is so important because because we want to be people who are rehearsing for ourselves what God has promised. We want to be people who are rehearsing for ourselves the truth that the promises that sin makes are lies. And that what God offers, the pleasures that God offers, they can't be faked. The knockoffs won't do it. And we need to be reminded of that constantly because we are weak we are wayward and we are beset with sinful impulses and inclinations. So we need the scriptures and we need one another as we hope together for the king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live and die well. Help us, Lord, to be people who say what needs to be said, who order our lives with hearts of wisdom, who number our days. And most of all, Lord, help us to be people who long for his appearing. Make us those whom he will save because we eagerly waited for him. And Lord, 
Help us to count the sufferings of Christ greater wealth than all the riches of Egypt. We pray all this for the glory of Christ. Amen.